This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, September 27th. There are a couple of things I want to do on today's show. Part one, of course, as always, is recap the last 24 hours in the tennis world. I want to focus on the results we saw produced from our two WTA tour-level events in Tokyo and Ningbo. We saw a couple of the top players in the world in action in Tokyo. Ika Sviantek got pushed by my Hantama. Ultimately, the now world number two able to advance. She wins the last four games of the first set, weathers the storm in the second set to ultimately, again, advance to the quarterfinals there. I want to break down her match, talk about what I saw from Jessica Pagula and others on the day, of course, in Ningbo. I think we had our entire round of 16 played out on Tuesday. We saw countless results, whether it was from top seed Anjabur, who advances once again. Again, you had wins from Petra Kvitova, Diana Schneider, Linda Fruvertova, and others that I want to discuss here on today's show. So again, we'll start with our usual recap of the latest results in the tennis world. After that, I want to have a little fun. Obviously, didn't want to just give you all a 15-minute podcast recapping results. Wanted to expand things a little bit here on this show, and I wanted to explore one of the thoughts that has been on the top of my mind, certainly throughout the course of this 2023 season and in my opinion is one of the most enjoyable storylines to follow down the season's home stretch and that of course is who is going to capture the title of best American man in 2023. I went through, looked at all the cases. I think there are seven guys who can make a claim to at some point this season having been, if not the best American man, certainly the most relevant American man in all of tennis at any given moment. And, you know, best versus relevant is certainly two different categories. We can explore each of those topics, I suppose, here on today's show. But I want to run you through the numbers, give you the historical comparison where things currently sit for American men's tennis because as you have to be well aware at this point it's been a while since there have been this many promising prospects for the American men and Again, for the first time in a long time, it feels like there's a half-decade runway for these men to continue to find success. Now, do we have an eventual slam champion in the group? I guess that's something I can explore today as well, get into all things American men's tennis here to wrap today's show. A fun little tangent, I suppose, for all of you listeners. Of course, if you're looking for additional coverage of what's going on right now across levels in the tennis world, we got you covered here at Cracked Rackets. We've got this podcast, then, of course, over on our Great Shot podcast. Damian Koost explores the challengers each and every week. Jay 
John J. Parsons, excuse me. I should introduce him by his full name. John Parsons and I explore all of the most relevant college results of the week. So if you're looking for additional content, the Great Shot Podcast is the place for you. Shout out to Westuff, as always, who makes everything happen. Shout out to you listeners for tuning day in, day out. And of course, shout out to the support we get on this podcast from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal, so I'll be brief today. It's Wednesday. It's the midweek hump. You guys want straight tennis talk, so we'll get to it. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products at the best prices in the tennis world. With all of that said, let's get into the past 24 hours in the tennis world. Let's start with our WTA Tour results, of course. Again, we got to start in Tokyo, right? We had multiple top 10 players in the world in action yesterday, whether it was Iga Swiatek or Jessica Pagula, each advancing on the day in straight sets. Swiatek was in a little bit of trouble, and I believe earlier I said she won the last four games of the set. I believe she won the last five games of the opening set on her way to a 6-4-7-5 victory. Now, it is worth noting, Sviantek was up 4-1 in that second set, saw her lead evaporate very quickly. She went down an opening break, for what it's worth, in that second set, then rips off four straight games again, and you think, all right, Ika's got this. No. My Hantama stuck around, and it's been a frisky first two weeks in Asia for Hantama. Last week, she makes the semifinals in Hosaka, a win over Podoroska, a win over former Ole Miss NCAA singles champ Ariane Hartono that we discussed before getting knocked out by Ashlyn Kruger. Excuse me, that was two weeks ago in Osaka. Now this week qualifies, get a win, gets a win over now. Habino plays a very competitive match against Sviantek. Just keep an eye on the 24-year-old from Japan. She certainly has the physicality to be a top 100 player moving forward. Her ability to absorb the pace Sviantek threw at her. It's a little bit flatter, the ground strokes for Hantama. That said, Sviantek certainly provided plenty of topspin for Hantama to feed off of her ability to redirect balls down the line, her ability to take the ball a little bit early a little bit on the rise, put some serious pressure in on Sviantek in Sviantek's service games. There was a reason she ripped off a 4-1 lead. Yes, Iga was spraying. She wasn't fully comfortable to start the match, but I'm not sure Hantama missed more than three shots in the opening five games of the set. And, you know, again, as she started to make her comeback in the second, that same relentless pursuit on every point, that same utilization of her quickness to beat Sviantek to spots. It's what put Sviantek under a little bit of pressure, took about a half a second away every point, and is what I think led to the wave of, in particular, forehand errors we saw from Sviantek at points in this match. But look, what I liked so much about this Iga performance is that she went back to the well. And when she was clearly spraying through that first set, she said, you know what? You want to make this match physical? Let's make this match physical. I guarantee you'll leave a ball short my Hantama before I, Ika Sviantek, leave a ball short and then the opportunities to attack will just be so glaringly obvious in presenting themselves. And that's precisely what happened for Sviantek, who just slowly, surely, in a measured fashion, again, works her way back in, had four match points before ultimately converting again, six, four, seven, five, steadies the ship, isn't forced into a third. Did she look great? No. Will she have a step-up in challenge against the weaponry of Veronica Kudermatova in her quarterfinal match? Absolutely. That said, Sviantek 4-0 in that career head-to-head. 
passed the test in match number one. New conditions found her way through in straight sets as the best players so frequently do. Just another casual quarterfinal for Iga Swiatek this season. For those of you curious, it is Iga's now uh, 11th quarterfinal of the season that ties her for the most alongside of Arena Sapalenka. So 11 quarterfinals now for the world number two. I mentioned earlier she could win the title this week. She will not be passing Sapalenka in the rankings no matter what. That said, world number one is still somewhat on the table for Sviantec should she make a strong push to finish the season. She was a winner on day one in Tokyo, day two, whatever it was formerly, maybe even day three. Pagula, Jessica Pagula, of course, world number four, also dominant, and a one and two victory over Christina Buxa and Buxa, excuse me. And look, there wasn't much to glean tactically from this match. There was nothing Buxa could do to hurt Pagula throughout the course of this victory for Jessica Pagula. Now she is into another quarterfinal here this season. For those of you curious, how many has Pagula made? It's her tenth. That ties her with. Uh, I believe Coco Goff, Caroline Garcia, tied for the third most on the WTA Tour this season. Look, it was a disappointing ending for Pagula, losing to Madison Keys in the fashion that she did in the fourth round of New York. But, I mean, talk about a stellar summer, right? Wins Montreal, semifinals in D.C. where she was knocked out by Sakari in three sets. Obviously, Sakari wins Guadalajara, so I think that age, that match has aged particularly well. I know she lost to Bojkova in Cincinnati, but who cares? She won Montreal. She has been exceptional throughout the course of this summer. Quarterfinals Wimbledon as well. It's just remarkable that, again, I feel like for two and a half years, Jessica Pagula being a top 10 player was something that just didn't sit right with me. It just didn't make sense how all this consist- where this consistency came from so late in her career. It just so clearly does make sense now. Again, it's not just the consistency. There's chutzpah behind every ground stroke she hits, the depth on her forehand in particular, the depth of every return. I mean, she's been top 10 in break percentage now for three years. She's the real deal. She looked like one of the five best players in the world, again, dominating in a straight set victory. Your other results in Tokyo, weird loss for Ludmilla Samsonova, four and two. Now, look, she loses to Katarina Alexandrova, who I have talked all year long, sneaky tw- one of the top 20 players in the world this season. 32-18 and 18 overall on the year is Alexandrova. You look for her hardcourt specifically, 16-11. and 11, But quarterfinals Miami, finals Cleveland, third-round loss to Vondrusova, U.S. Open, now reaches the quarterfinals here in Tokyo. So third Tokyo, uh, third quarterfinal for the year on hardcourts this season. You know, again, she's now 32-18 and 18 overall on the year. She's winning 64% of her matches. You look for Alexandrova, she's 18th in the points race. She's 20th in the live rankings. You want to go to some advanced analytics. You go to the ELO ratings right now. Alexandrova, 20th overall. You want to do 2023 specifically. She's 23rd, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract. The pace she's able to produce, how low, how flat that ball stays, it was never in the strike zone of Samsonova. Now, for Samsonova, who won this Tokyo event last season, that's a tough one for her from a rankings perspective. She'll drop to number 22 now at the start of next week. Samsonova entering the week uh, 22 overall. So, excuse me, I guess no movement for her in the rankings, but obviously loses those title points. Just never got things going in this match, and it started with the poor performance on the first serve. Samsonova made just 47% of her first serves in this match. She threw in eight double faults in the course of it, was broken four different times. 
She just didn't have rhythm today, and again, that continues to be the problem for Samsonova. The overwhelming power when she's in form, abundantly evident. Plan B, plan C, plan D. When she's playing her best, that 75% neutral ball that grinds down her opponent and ultimately produces attacking opportunities is there. It wasn't today, and that's a credit to Alexandrova, who again, took the initiative whenever it presented, but tough loss for Samsonova with all those points to defend. Alexandrova through to round number two, which, uh, three, the quarterfinals, where she will face either Noskova or Pavlichenkova. Kunamatova, your final winner of the day, three and three over Kayla Day. Again, things are lining up well. Sviantek Kudermatova guaranteed, whether it's Alexandrova Pavlachenkova or Alexandrova Naskova in on that match. Obviously, today you have Garcia Kalinina, uh, Sakari Doi, Kasakina Papa Mikhail to round out the round of 16. But of course, you know, if it's Sviantek versus Kudermatova, Naskova Alexandrova, Garcia Sakari, Kasakina Pagula, and it's late September. What more could you ask for as a tennis fan? Things looking very fun in Tokyo. Sviantek, 54.6% favorite right now, according to Tennis Abstract. Pagula next at 219 After that, they're saying good luck to the rest of the field. That's your action in Tokyo. Over in Ningbo, again, you had, I think, your entire round of 16 now officially in the books. Let's look at the most notable results from an upset perspective. Sweet baby Rays. Did Linda Fruvertova need this sort of week? For those of you that maybe haven't followed the progress of the 18-year-old from the Czech Republic particularly closely, she reached a career high of number 49 uh, back in the middle of this season. Of course, that number 49 came on the back of a round of 16 in Australia to start the year. A a title in Chennai at the end of last season as well. You know, again, some other results obviously helping to contribute to that, but that is really what pushed her to that career high. Really struggled in the middle portions of this season. I believe she had a stretch where she lost 15 of 17 matches consecutively. In fact, that was the streak. She'd lost 15 of 17 coming into this week, just 13 and 22 overall on the year. Gets a massive three-set win over Masarova and rallies from there to a three-set win over Anna Blinkova, the number four seed, 6-3-3-6-6-1. She's back up to number 102 in the live rankings. She has a very winnable match against Lucia Bronzetti to get herself back into the top 100, which again, at 18 years old, that would make her the sixth teenager actively in the top 100. Not a bad spot to be. The Fruvertova backhand is excellent. I think she's starting to develop a little bit more pop on that forehand. I think she's getting better as a mover, but when she gets stretched into corners, that's definitely where she struggles. The serve can sit up. The contact points on the return of serve always solid. There's a lot to like about Linda Fruvertova. I don't know if she does anything in an elite fashion. So, you know, again, her ceiling, and keep in mind this is someone who's been in the ethos since she was having success, 14, 15, 16 years old, killing it at the junior level with her younger sister, Brenda, I don't know if her ceiling is top 10. I do think she will be a top 50 player for a very long time. The foundations are there, and she still has so much time to continue and to improve things on the margins. A massive result for her to steady the ship, break the losing streak, gain some confidence. She's into the quarterfinals. Again, a very winnable match against Lucia Bronzetti. That's a fun one. Certainly, it will be fun to watch the big-hitting lefties do battle. Diana Schneider, 3-2 and two over Rakimova. She's into another quarterfinal with the victory. Schneider up to number 76 in the live rankings. That would be a new career high for the 19-year-old. 
the weapons are real. Like, again, sometimes the serve sits up, but if she gets a clean strike on the ball, she's now in control from there. Let's watch them do battle in round number two, see how she handles the pace of Kvitova. Top half of the draw, because, again, bottom half, Bronzetti versus Fruvertova, Kvitova versus Schneider. Top half, Podoroska will take on Katarina Sinyakova. Sinyakova, a 3-5 and five win over Kirstea. That's one of your bigger upsets of the round. Podoroska, three-set win over Savink. Uh, then, yeah, unfortunately, another retirement from Clara Tossin after she's won a first-round match. That happened to her last week. It happened to her when I saw her a couple weeks ago in Cleveland. It happens again here in Ningbo. She's forced to retire after dropping the first set to Vera Zavonareva. Again, more than anything, you just hope Tossin can find health to end the season because when she is healthy, she's starting to look like that player who was so clearly a future top 20 star back in 2021 and 2022 prior to her injuries. And then last but not least, another quarterfinal for Anjabur, who again is trying to consolidate her spot at number eight in the points race. She's now up 365 points on Maria Sakari as a result of her quarterfinal here. She never had to amp things up. This was the most in control she's looked in a long time in a match. Three and two against Tamara Korpatz. Two and one in the career head-to-head she is with Vera Savanareva. Those are two fun names, right, to be doing battle in what is our undercard WTA event of the week. But again, right now, uh, actually Kvitova, 51.5% favorite to win the event. That's probably because she has Schneider, Fruvertova, and Bronzetti on her side. After that, Anjabur, 33.9%. And they're saying if anyone other but those two wins, it will be a massive shot. Not shocking to read that, given, again, the differences in pedigree between Jabur, Kvitova, and the rest of the field. Nevertheless, that was the most significant action that's occurred over the last 24 hours of play. Yeah, you had some first-round matches at the Challenger happening in Charleston, South Carolina, that obviously I've got an eye on this week, and I believe our guy Mike C. Tennis, Mike Cation, the podfather, on the call this week. Always great to have him back in our lives, and you know, so many of the best American young prospects or, you know, guys like Dennis Kudla, who wins Columbus Challenger last week, players with college tennis ties, so many of them competing in Charleston this week for those uh, perhaps unaware of that draw, because I don't know if I've mentioned it yet this week, just to quickly run through who's competing in Charleston, why we'll be watching it so closely uh, here on this show. Again, it's some of our guys. You've got Dennis Kudla back in action. He already got a win over Tristan Schoolkate. You've got guys like Stefan Destanich, the fifth year at USC. He gets a win over Alex Richard. Ethan Quinn back in the winner's circle. Finally, he gets a 2-6 and six win over Lexi Galarno, who obviously made a final last week. That's a little bit of a schedule loss. Adam Walton and the likes. Excited to have the opportunity to watch all of them compete right now, according to Tennis Abstract. Dennis Kudla, not surprisingly, he's the favorite coming off of of the Columbus Challenger title, uh, Kudla, a 20.6% favorite. Uh, after that, top seed, uh, Vashik Pospisil, so, excuse me, the number three seed, 16% top seed, Enzo Kakaud, uh, 11.1%. In that spirit of the Charleston Challenger, let's get to our final topic here on today's show, a question that has been on the top of my mind. I imagine it's something some of you mini-break listeners, those more American tennis-inclined, have certainly thought about or maybe discussed with your tennis friends at points throughout the course of this year. Who's the best American man right now? I think it's an open debate. I think it's a really fun discussion to have, a really fun thought exercise, because for the first time in a long time, 
there are certainly American prospects to be thoroughly excited about over the next five to 10 years. And look, that starts at the top with three guys who have been top 15 players for just about the duration of the season. It started with Tommy Paul making that Australian Open semifinal from there. Obviously, the year Taylor Fritz has had, he goes, wins a title in Delray Beach. He quarterfinals Indian Wells in Miami. He makes a quarterfinal run at the U.S. Open for the first time this season. He racks up win after win after win and has been a pretty consistent presence in the top 10 of the rankings. You've had his success. You've had... Maybe, again, who's the most notable American man? Who's the guy that seems to capture the attention and captivate the crowd in New York more than any other American? That seems to be Francis Tiafo by my eye, and how could it not be after his semifinal run in New York last season follows that up with a quarterfinal run this year? He's very quietly 37-17 and 17 overall on the season. He's top 15 guy in total wins on the year, top 15 guy in the rankings in the points race. He obviously uh, was able to make a semifinals at a Masters event this year in Indian Wells. Also, a couple of titles for him, Clay in Houston, grass courts in Stuttgart. Obviously, he and Fritz helped lead the United Cup alongside Pagula Keys uh, uh, to a United Cup victory, excuse me, for the Americans. And what a team that is. You know, those are three guys who are all going to finish in the top 20 of the rankings. And I went back looking, you know, when's the last time we had three top 20 guys at the end of the year? The last one I can find is the 2011 season. And I'm not going to lie, I didn't look particularly closely. I apologize if I missed like a 2012 or I don't, I know for a fact Stevie Johnson never got top 20. There might have been a year where Isner, Sock, and Query all flirted with ending the season top 20. That would have been, what, 2017, I guess, right after Sock had won his title. You look at the end of the 2017 rankings, Sock was 8, Query was 13, Isner was 17. So, okay, good top of the head, fact check by me. This happened at the end of 2017. Sock was 25 years old, Query was 30, Isner was 32. This also happened back in 2011, as I mentioned, end of that 2011 season. And it was unfortunate because Roddick, Fish, Blake, their primes never truly overlapped in the sense of they all finished years in the top 20. But you look at the end of the 2011 season, you have Marty Fish, 30 years old, eight in the world. Andy Roddick, still 29 years old, 14 in the world. John Isner, 26 years old, 18 in the world. Again, we still got we still had a few more solid years from Roddick. Fish obviously had a couple of years where he was a top ten player in the world, and we know the consistency of John Isner and his career inside the top twenty. But those groups, Fish, Roddick, Isner, Sock, Query, Isner, shout out to Isner for being a part of both of them, six years apart. They were older. And I just don't think they had racked up. I mean, obviously Roddick had, but this was, you know, 2011 Roddick is not the same as 2004 Andy Roddick. This is a rare instance where, again, we have three guys who will all be in their primes, over, will all have their primes overlap, and have all shown those primes are top 15, top 10 players, flirting with that level of tennis uh, throughout the duration of a 52-week stretch. And it's just, again... It's worth getting excited about. We've seen Fritz win an Indian Wells title. We've seen Paul Tiafo make semifinals of majors. 
those are the three where you have to start with who's the best American man of 2023, right? Those are the unequivocal cases. And again, the best part of all of this, you look at the rankings right now for what it's worth. Those who are curious, there are currently 10 American men uh, inside the top 100. Fritz is 25, turns 26 this year, but he's 25. Tommy's 26, and he turned 26 this year again. He and Fritz both 1997s. Tiafo's a January 98. He's still 25 years old. You want to look at the other two top five Americans, both, by the way, in consideration of this list. Ben Shelton, 20 years old. He's 20 in the uh, 20 years old. He's 20 in the world. Corda's 23 years old. He's 28 in the world. Eubanks, 27. If you want to go further, he's 32 in the world. Mackie McDonald, who by the way, if you look at Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings, he's actually been the fourth best according to ELO, not Fritz, not Tiafo, not Paul. They say Mackie McDonald's the fourth best American in the world right now. 28 years old, he's still 39 in the rankings. J.J. Wolf, 24 years old, he's a 1998. He's 51 in the world. You know, Michael Moe is in January 1998. He's 84 in the world. Marcos Giron's the oldest American in the top 100, and he just turned 30. Again, that was query. That was fish. And he's in the back half of this American conversation. You've got a guy in Alex Mickelson, 110 in the world. He's 19. Obviously, we've seen guys like Nakashima and Brooksby, who are both still under 23, outside of the top 100 now, but both have been top 50 players. It's just, again, worth reiterating the There are going to be 10 guys who are going to be competing at all the big events, in my opinion, moving forward. Obviously, Fritz, Tiafo, Paul, Shelton, Corda, they feel like locks. I think Wolf, Eubanks aren't going anywhere for the next three to five years. Same with Mackie McDonald. If Michael Moe can stay healthy, he has certainly shown top 50 tennis. And I think it's just a matter of time till Mickelson, Nakashima, Brooksby are back in that group as well. So to have 10, you know, eight to 10 Americans in every draw, and to have three of them having already clearly displayed the top 15 level they're capable of playing. Obviously, Ben made quarterfinals, semifinals of two majors this year. I think we still need to see a little bit more from him. We did see Chris Eubanks win a title this season, make a quarterfinal at Wimbledon. We know when he's serving well, he's going to be competitive in every match that he plays. I still think Sebi Corda had the best month of any of these players this year. You look for Sebastian Corda and what he was able to do in the month of January, not only making the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, beating Medvedev and, you know, beating Hercots in the fashion that he did. But, you know, he beats Sinner. He beats RBA. Murray on his way to an Adelaide final, where, by the way, he had match points on Djokovic in Australia in that month of January for him to play that match in three sets, then beat Medvedev on a hard court, who in the month of February didn't lose hard court matches, beat Hercots, who was playing really well at the time. That month of January might have been the highest level of tennis I've seen from any individual American. To beat Medvedev, to have a match point on Djokovic on hard courts, to beat Sinner on hard courts that early in, you know, regardless of when it is, excuse me, in a season, those are top 10 results. That's top 10 tennis. That's what we saw from Sebi Korda earlier this year. He flashed top 10 tennis. I think we saw Tommy flash top 10 tennis this year as well. You look for Tommy and beating Alcaraz and making that semifinal in Canada and playing him three sets again the very next week, going on to make the fourth round of the U.S. Open. Where, yeah, he lost a tough match to Ben Shelton, did not play his best tennis, certainly, but 
I thought Tommy was one of the 10 best players in the world during the North American hardcourt stretch. I think we saw early in the season when he semifinaled the Australian Open and you know reaches that final, beats Fritz, then plays that marathon match with Demonauer as well, back-to-back to make the finals in Acapulco. You know, plays really fun matches with Felix, with Alcaraz, beats Hercots, Davidovich, Fokina in Miami, Indian Wells respectfully. Tommy's top five in hardcourt victories by any player in the top 50 on the ATP Tour this season. You look for Tommy this year on the hard courts. Again, he was spectacular. Tommy Paul overall on hard courts this season, and I apologize because I clicked the wrong tab to show it where I had lined up. Let's go back to the correct tab here now. You look for Tommy on hard courts this year again. Tommy goes 26-12. and 12. Those 26 wins trail just Djokovic, Sinner, Demonauer, Fritz, and Medvedev. So, excuse me, sixth in hardcourt victories this year. Sixth. That's an outstanding season for Tommy, particularly given where those victories came. Semifinals of Australia, quarterfinals uh, of, uh, excuse me, round of 16 in New York. He wasn't, you know, dominating the 250 world. And, he was doing it at big events as well as – it wasn't just dominating 250s, excuse me. was doing it at big events as well. And look, for the 26-year-old Paul, it's a career year. You look for Tommy, 42 or level victories – or excuse me, he's 40 and 23 overall in the season. If you include uh, everything that he's played, including challengers, that would be the most wins for him in any season of his career. He currently has 35 tour level victories. That's four behind the career high he had last season, but we still got a lot of matches to play. I expect he'll surpass that number. His career highs and hold percentage, break percentage, just missing the top 25 club as he's 27th in hold percentage amongst top 50 players. He's top 20 in break percentage for what it's worth. Again, you look at the numbers for Tommy. Uh, nine different quarterfinals this year. He made three different finals. Now, he didn't win a title. Knocked out an Eastbourne by Sarundolo. Knocked out an Aon Provence by Murray. Knocked out an Acapulco by Demonauer. But three different finals and nine quarterfinals is nothing to bat an eye on. Again, that's a really solid year from Tommy Paul. And, you know, you have that case. You've got, I think, Fran- you've got the quarter month of January. You've got Tommy's consistency. I think him on hard courts might have been as good, you know, probably, well, I mean, Fritz has more hardcourt wins, but Fritz, a lot of his wins came at 250s, much more so in my opinion than Tommy. I think Tommy on hardcourts was probably the best American on any surface this season, but I mean, look, Francis was excellent across surfaces. Francis wins a title in Houston on clay. He wins a title in grass on hard court. He, you know, also makes a quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. He also makes a semifinals at uh, Indian Wells. You look for Francis, he made seven different quarterfinals this season. And, you know, unlike Tommy, who goes 0-3 in finals, Francis goes 3-0 and in finals this year. Now, one of those was United Cup, but still, United Cup, Houston, Stuttgart. You add that to the Indian Wells semifinal, U.S. Open quarterfinal, third rounds, I believe, at the other three majors. Francis had a solid season. There's no denying that. Now, you know, again, for Francis, 10-12 and 12 against top 50 players, 2-4 and four against top 20 players. Tommy 14 and 14 for what it's worth against the top 50, 3 and 8 against the top 20. Those are the numbers where I think because Tommy 
was very good on hard courts, wasn't the best on clay courts or grass courts. You look for Tommy this year after having a really good grass court season. Well, I guess he made a final in Eastbourne, uh, quarterfinals in Newport, but lost third round to Lachetka at Wimbledon. Tommy had a very bad clay court season, five and six overall. Second round, Roland Garros lost to Yari, losses to Safulin, Nakashima, Garin at a couple of other events. Again, you look for Francis across surfaces this year, a little bit more consistent. Francis on the hard courts, 22-11, wins two-thirds of his matches. I thought was one of the 15 best players on hard courts. Certainly 8-4 and four on the clay, including the title in Houston. 7-2 and two on the grass, losses to Korda and Dimitrov. No shame in that game. Francis was more consistent than Tommy across surfaces. Tommy's best on hard courts was probably a little bit better than Francis's this year. And again, Tommy, nine quarterfinals. Francis, what, made the, uh, I think I said it, uh, seven quarterfinals this year. Three titles for Francis, none for Tommy. Who do you give the edge to there? I think Tommy's best was better than Francis's best this season. Tommy right now, 13 in the rankings. Francis right now, 11 in the rankings. You look in the points race, they're very similar. Tommy, 12. Francis, 13. You want to go by ELO ratings, which measure, of course, who and how you beat someone as opposed to where and when. Tommy, 16. Francis, 15. Yeah, it's about break even. I would say they've had very similar seasons. Again, Tommy's best was a little bit better. Francis was a little bit more consistent. The problem for both of them, looking at the numbers, is that Taylor's just got the best of both worlds. Taylor, 49-20 and 20 overall in the season. It's more wins than both guys. He's made 13 different quarterfinals. That's more than both guys. And yes, a lot of those quarterfinals have come at 250-level events, but he also makes quarterfinals in Indian Wells. He makes quarterfinals in Miami, quarterfinals in Cincinnati, semifinals at a clay event in Monte Carlo. You know, you look for him against top 50 opponents, a little bit more consistent, 21 and 13. He's 6 and 7 against the top 20. Again, that's three more top 20 victories than Francis, two more than Tommy, or maybe vice versa on that stat. I might be mixing up their wins. He also makes a quarterfinal of the U.S. Open. Obviously, the tough second round loss to Emer at Wimbledon, but third round at Roland Garros, four sets to Sarundel. I think that's an improvement for Taylor. Obviously, the disappointing Australian Open where he loses second round to Popperin. I mean, he's just been the most, he's been more consistent than Francis. And was his best better than Tommy's best? That's really the question. I mean, second, let's see, who are the losses to? Djokovic in Cincy quarters, Djokovic in U.S. Open quarters, Sinner in three sets in the Indian Wells quarters, Alcaraz in straight sets in the Miami Masters quarters. I mean, his three losses, uh, four losses were Djokovic, Djokovic, Sinner, Alcaraz in the big hard court matches that he played versus Tommy losing to Shelton. Tommy lost to what? Djokovic, I believe, in Australia. Tommy loses to Demonauer in Acapulco. Tommy loses to Carlos in Cincinnati. It's a very fun argument. You see me struggling in, with it, even if I do think statistically, because you look, Taylor, the best of the hold percentage, Taylor one, Francis two, Tommy three. You look by break percentage, Tommy one, but not that much ahead of Francis, not that, uh, not that much ahead of Taylor, and not that much ahead of Francis either, who, by the way, Francis, Taylor, two of the, I believe, 
14 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage right now. It's a big group, which speaks to the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty outside the top five. Djokovic, Alcaraz, Sinner, Medvedev, Zverev, who, by the way, are the five guys to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. The numbers, the eye test say, those are the five best players in the world. The numbers and the eye test say, after that, it's anyone's ball game. I think Taylor's the best American in the world right now. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention who's the most notable American right now. I think you probably have to go Ben Shelton or Chris Eubanks for Ben to reach the semifinals, beat Tommy, beat Francis on his way there in New York to have the quarterfinal success that he's had as well, the energy he plays with. He was invited to the Laver Cup this early in his career. He's going to be one of the top seeds at the next-gen finals this year, and this was his first time traveling outside of the United States. Came in 2023 as he began pursuing his pro career. He's a rising star. He might be the guy in American men's tennis right now that everyone's looking towards. He may have surplanted the top three, even though they're all top 15 players. Ben has to be included in this discussion. Chris Eubanks has to be included in this discussion, not just because he made a Wimbledon quarterfinal, not just because he won his first title this year, not just because he's one of the top 35 players in the world. He's 32 in the rankings right now. Chris is also a superstar, as good as anyone we have in tennis media right now. He's on Good Morning America, and you feel like that could be a legitimate future. Is he going to have the NFL career like a Nate Burleson does, who's on, I think, the CBS Morning Show? I think he could have a tennis equivalent career of what Nate Burleson did in the NFL, and I just think t- Chris is made for television. He's intelligent. He's charismatic. He's funny. He's so kind-hearted. He's got a beautiful smile. He's just a wonderful person. Um, And that personality, that charisma, that ability to draw fans in to what he's doing, that matters. Like there's just, you know, again, I think Francis has it. I think Ben has it. I think Chris has it. I think Tommy has it. I don't think Taylor has. Like Taylor, it's a little bit more forced. I mean, Taylor's working so hard out there. Not that they all aren't working so hard, but you just like you see the effort. It feels more tangible when watching Taylor play uh, because maybe he just has to work a little bit harder. The other four guys, Tommy, Francis, Ben, Chris, may be blessed with certain athletic gifts that Taylor physically doesn't necessarily have. And so you see that effort. You feel like you feel it more so. I don't know, in watching him play, but... Again, you have that. You've got Sebi Korda. Comes from a, a sports family. Americans love dynasties, even if we don't always admit it. Alex Mickelson, I think, has to be just hinting in this conversation, given the success he's had as a teenager so quickly. It feels like one breakout result at the tour level over a top 20 player, and we'll all be jumping on that bandwagon pretty quickly. Again, American men's tennis is in a very good spot. The best spot it's been in in my lifetime. And if you're asking me right now, who's the best American man of 2023? If they all played in a tournament draw, ooh. I mean, I saw Francis Tiafo come out of that draw at the 2014 or 2015 Kalamazoo where Fritz was in it, was where Paul was in it. All these guys were in it. Hmm. <sighs> Who's the best of them across surfaces? Who do I trust to get a win in neutral competition? So I think Francis would actually win if you put the best eight Americans in a draw. If you say, who do I have the most faith in day in, day out, I'd still take Taylor. 
But man, I, it's an agonizing decision. Like again, I think Corda's best is still the best on this list because there are times you watch him play when it's just untouchable. I think Ben's best could someday be the best on this list. He's that gifted both athletically and with a racket in his hand. Mickelson's a joke. He just has one of those shoulders. And again, like I didn't mention the athleticism of a Tommy Paul. I didn't mention the breathtaking contact points. And few people swing a racket as cleanly and perfectly as Taylor Fritz does. It's a really fun group. We'll keep our eye on the best American man race down the home stretch of this 2023 season. Keep you updated if there are any changes. That said, a little bit of a tangent to end today's show. Again, give you the sort of entertainment you all deserve. Now, of course, as always, a shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. This podcast, The Great Shot Podcast, and The Cracked Interviews Podcast, where an interview with U.S. Open doubles champion Rajiv Ram will be posted later here on Wednesday. Again, shout out to Westoff, who makes it all possible. Shout out to the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point as well. Remember, it's tennis-point.com, the Promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.